Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Everybody will stand, turn to John chapter 8, beginning at verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself, your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to, the, then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, because he says, Where I go, you cannot come? And he said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for another day to come together and worship as one body, and we pray that as Bill brings this word to us this morning that you would open our ears to hear and our eyes to see what you would have for us this morning and to uh, go forth and proclaim your gospel to the ends of the earth. We pray that you would meet every need this morning and reach into our hearts and change our hearts this morning towards you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Mary Farwell of Greencastle, Missouri, told the time she was listening to her five-year-old son, Matthew, as he worked on his speak-and-spell computer. He was concentrating intently, typing in words for the computer to say back to him. Matthew punched in the word, God. To his surprise, the computer said, word not found. He tried again with the same reply. Staring at the computer in disgust, he declared, Jesus is not going to like this. Sadly, today, Jesus is going to be talking to some religious rulers about who he is and what he has came to do. And like that, computer is just not going to compute. We left off last week with Jesus proclaiming that he was the light of the world. That is the context of what we'll be looking at next. Look at verse 13 with me. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself, your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, 
Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. And the procedure of Jewish law, it required at least two or three witnesses for the establishment of any fact. If you remember way back in chapter 5, Jesus had cited five independent testimonies that reinforced and corroborated his own. They were witness number one, God the Father. Witness number two, John the Forerunner. Witness number three, the signs and miracles. Witness number four, the scripture. And finally, witness number five, Moses. But even without those, Jesus says, whether you believe it or not, I know my witness is true because I know where I am going and I know where I've come from. I've read that verse many times over my life, but it struck me in a new way this week. How do I know that my witness as a Christian is true? Not just externally, but internally as well. In a way, I know it the same way that Jesus did. In that, I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. Now, I, of course, know that when Jesus says he knows where he came from, he is speaking of the glory of heaven in eternity past. But one way that I know that my witness is true as a born-again believer is that I also know where I came from. The big difference with me is it certainly wasn't from the glories of eternity. No, for me, for almost the first 22 years of my life, I came from a vile, foul, sin-infested way of living. But like we said last week, he brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So I know my witness is true because I know where I came from. But not only that, once again, like Jesus, I know where I'm going. And so even though that I live in a world that is largely dominated by darkness, I know my witness is true. Because as Romans 8.16 says, his spirit bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. And because of that, I know that one day I will throw off this old tent of flesh and be made gloriously and eternally new forever. And that's why the gospel is called good news. Verse 15, please. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone. But I am with the Father who sent me. There are really two ways of understanding Jesus' statement, I am not judging anyone. He may have meant he did not judge anyone according to the flesh, as in superficially and externally, 
like the Pharisees were doing. Or the Lord could have meant he did not judge anyone yet. Since God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In the future, however, Jesus will judge, as we are told in John 5:22, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. But what does it mean to judge according to the flesh? It means to make a rash statement or judgment on what we know or more precisely on what we think we know. It shames me to admit how many times I have been guilty of this. This is an area in my own life that I really have to watch because, and I won't speak for you, you may be a whole lot more mature than I am, but for me, it is so easy to make a judgment just according to my flesh, even though the results are often disastrous. In fact, the word prejudice comes from a Latin word that means to prejudge. In his book, The Grace Awakening, Charles Swindoll recounts an experience he once had while ministering at a Bible conference. On the first night, he had met a, briefly met a couple who seemed to be really friendly and quite glad to be at the meetings. However, as the week went by, Swindoll noticed that roughly 10 minutes after he would start speaking, at every meeting, the husband would fall fast asleep. The experience began to irritate Charles so much that by the time of the final meeting, he was convinced that the man was there only to please his wife and was probably just a carnal Christian, if he was a Christian at all. At the conclusion of the final meeting, however, the wife requested to speak to Chuck for a few minutes. He figured she wanted to talk to him about her husband's lack of interest in spiritual matters. Imagine how greatly embarrassed he was when his, when, she, when his wife mentioned that her husband had terminal cancer and that they had attended the conference mainly at his request. It was his final wish to be at the conference, even though the pain medication that he took would make him drowsy. She then said, he loves the Lord, and you are absolutely his favorite Bible teacher. He wanted to be here to meet you and to hear you no matter what. It was his final wish. Charles Swindle wrote, I stood there all alone, as deeply rebuked as I have ever been. What a dangerous thing it is to judge others. Jesus said, for in the way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Contained in this passage is the fact that when Jesus does one day judge, it will not be according to the flesh. It will be righteous and true and completely accurate. 
As I said last week, Jesus is the living word of God. And we are given a description of what that looks like in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, spirit and of joints and marrow. And get this, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So just know this, one day we will all be judged. The sinner will be judged according to their sins, and the believer will be judged according to their works. Not for salvation, that has already been dealt with on the cross. But we will be judged with what we did with that salvation. But Jesus will be the perfect judge. Allow me one more illustration for it makes a powerful point. The young man sat before the bench, head held low, hands hanging loosely at his side. His crime had been serious and parents and family all who, and all who knew him had been shocked by what he had done. The jury found him guilty on all charges and now all that remained to be done was for the judge to pass sentence. As the judge entered the courtroom, an order was called. Those present, including the young man, arose. As everyone returned to their seats, the young man heard the words that he had been dreading. The defendant will now rise and face the court. The moment had come, and he knew that his entire future now rested in the hands of the man he was now facing. The judge repeated the charges and reiterated the finding of guilty by the jury on each charge. The young man winced after each charge was read. On the charge of aiding and abetting a criminal and involving transportation of stolen goods, the defendant has been found guilty. On the charge of evading an officer, the defendant has been found guilty. On a charge of possession of a firearm, the defendant has been found guilty. The charge of six and all echoed throughout the young man's mind. How would he ever be able to face his parents, his friends, and especially his girlfriend? Would the judge be lenient since he had never been in trouble before? Would he receive prison time? And if so, how much? What would prison be like? As the judge rattled on, the scene in the courtroom became surreal, almost like a bad dream. He lifted his face toward the bench as the judge finished their narration. You have been found guilty. And then the judge paused. The judge brought his eyes directly into focus with the defendants as he began his sentencing. I hope you know the seriousness of what you have done. James Rogers, you have affected the lives of your parents and everyone who loves you. The law is very specific in demonstrating how serious your offenses are. The penalties it calls for in these circumstances are not lenient. However, this is your first offense, and I believe that you are truly sorry for what you've done. You've shown great remorse during the course of this trial. 
The character witnesses have all said that they would defend you and spoke very highly of you. I have spoken with your parents and have come to the conclusion that there will be no repeat of this behavior. Therefore, I sentence you to one year of probation and 200 hours of community service. With those words, a young man suddenly felt a cooling sense of relief filtered down from his head to his toes. His knees wobbled, and he grabbed the attorney's coat sleeve, feeling that in a moment he might collapse under the strain of the situation. Following the comforting words, the judge's merciful countenance slowly began to change. With a stern look now toward the man, he added, it is also my job to protect society from those who would seek to harm her. It is also my job to uphold and punish those who disobey the law. He then asked for the young man to approach the bench. James wondered if there would be additional punishment since the judge had been deliberately writing something down on a piece of paper. He folded it and placed it within an envelope. James, within this envelope are the penalties I could have brought down on you today. I want you to go home and read them over with your parents. And remember, even though it's my job to show mercy when I feel that it's warranted, if you disregard that mercy, I will be forced to do exactly what is written on those pieces of paper. It is now your job to make sure that my mercy will never be transformed into anger. Is that not a powerful reminder? Mercy resting upon wrath. That's what makes a judge powerful and the laws effective. When a defendant knows that mercy scorned translates into wrath realized. And it, it can become a very effective deterrent to repeat offenses. But just as a good judge is always concerned first with mercy and then wrath, so too our Savior, Jesus Christ, is first and foremost the merciful servant. His primary role is always a loving Savior. In John 3.17 it says, The Bible tells us he did not come into the world to condemn, but to save. Yet, if you and I do not submit to that mercy, if we scorn his loving offer to bear our sins for us, he is left with no alternative than to condemn us of the punishment that we deserved in the first place. Christ came into the world to bless, not to punish. Genesis 22 says that all the earth through him will be blessed. But when that blessing is ignored and sin is instead embraced, the curse of the law must be brought to bear upon those who disdain and spurn that kind of love. The judgment of Christ will be harsh when there is no faithfulness on our part. If we reject the help and comfort of Christ, there is no alternative in paying that price. Hell is assured. Verse 17. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. 
I'm the one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. When they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Those words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. And Jesus said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Because he says, Where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, You are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Basically that whole section I read can just be summed up like this. These people are so blinded to not only who Jesus is, but also who they are. Jesus tells them they really didn't know the Father at all. Now, I think verse 21 is chilling. Jesus tells these men, After my crucifixion, I will be going back to my Father, and you will be left behind, and you will seek me. But here's the heartbreaking truth. They are not going to seek him for salvation. Instead, they will be seeking to find his body in the hopes of disproving the resurrection. And this is the part that I think is frightening. Jesus, who knows the end from the beginning, tells them, Where I am going, you cannot come, and you will die in your sins if you refuse to believe in me. Now, I know this broke the heart of Christ. Because the Bible is abundantly clear that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But Jesus knows that some, or maybe all of these men, of their own accord and volitional will are going to spurn the offer of salvation to the day of their death. Jesus is telling these men, I have looked down the quarters of time and I can tell you that your end is a lake of fire. Their response, they are so blinded, they think Jesus is speaking of committing suicide. I only bring that out to warn us and those who will watch this on the internet of just one thing. The scripture speaks of a time when the Lord can turn a person over to what is called a reprobate mind. And if and when that happens, I believe there is no longer any chance of that person being saved. It's like in the book of Exodus. Five times we are told that Pharaoh hardened his heart, and five times we are told that God hardened his heart. So which is it? The answer is both. What I mean is, if we continually harden our hearts, eventually the Lord can give us over to that hardening. So if the Lord has been drawing you to himself, I implore you, please don't keep putting that off, because this time might be the last time. Which is why Jesus told them in verse 24, 
because if they refuse to believe in him, they will die in their sins. But there is that blessed word, if, isn't there? That's a warning word, but it's also a word of hope. The word if introduces the only hope of escape from God's wrath and the judgment on sin. R.C.H. Linsky notes, The sins of these men will destroy them by robbing them of the eternal life only if they refuse to believe in Jesus. The if clause is pure gospel, extending its blessed invitation anew. Yet it is again combined with a warning about dying in sins. Linsky finishes by saying, the note of warning with its terrifying threat persists because these Jews had chosen the course of unbelief. Yet the if opens the door of life in the wall of sin. Sin. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Sin. That word sin has almost been eliminated in our day. A century ago, our vocabulary was rich in, sin, in terms for synonyms for sin. Words like iniquity, transgression, turpitude, depravity, reprobation, and my personal favorite, peccancy. New Testament Greek had 33 different words for sin. Apparently, we once knew our way around that concept. And you know, you can learn a lot about society by digging through their heaps of discarded words. These days, you don't hear people worrying about their turpitude at the water cooler or sharing about their depravity during prayer time. A few years ago, as a matter of fact, the Oxford Junior Dictionary, having long since scratched out the words I listed above, tried to make it a clean sweep by removing also the word sin. Supposedly, it was an old, decrepit word that now sat in the corner rocking chair and just talked about the good old days. Nobody paid attention to that word anymore. Words like iniquity and its cousin turpitude, well, they passed away. And now instead of sin, we have words like mistake, unfortunate choice, and of course a little boo-boo. We may wipe sin out of our dictionaries, but we can't wipe it out of our souls. As a culture, we can try to rub out the definition of sin, but the condition isn't going anywhere. It cracks the whip on just as many slaves as the entire population of the world as it ever did. And if we fail to acknowledge the reality of that, there can be no sorrow. And without sorrow, there can be no confession. And without confession, we miss, we miss the richest blessing of God's forgiveness and grace. So, don't call it a mistake, an addiction, a boo-boo, or my bad. Call it exactly what it is. Call it sin. Renaming it does us no good and it's certainly not fooling God in any way. It's like the drunk husband who came home late one night and his wife found him huddled over the toilet bowl throwing up his Mad Dog 2020. He was so miserable. 
he moaned to his wife, please pray for me. So she did. She said, oh, God, you see my drunk of a husband throwing his guts up. I pray you would save him and free him from alcohol. To which her husband replied, don't tell God I'm drunk. Tell him I just have the flu. That's how a lot of people are without thinking about it. They think they can fool God to their true condition if they just call it something else. Jesus then reminds them and us this morning that barring the rapture, everyone within the sound of my voice, including yours truly, is one day going to die. Now, people say the only thing they have to do is die and pay taxes. But you don't have to pay taxes. You'll go to jail, but you don't have to pay them. But you do have to die. Yet the vast majority of men and women give little to no thought about dying at all. It's almost like we think that dying is what happens to other people, but it will never happen to us. One man said, The knowledge that every ambition is doomed to destruction at the hands of a skeleton has never presented the majority of human beings for behaving as though death was no more than an unfounded rumor. So I ask us this morning, why is it that people will exercise common sense in a thousand matters of daily life, but they will not exercise common sense in the matter of eternity? People will provide for themselves financially, saving up to the day of retirement when they will no longer be working as they used to. They will provide for their health. Not only will they go to the doctor when they're ill, they will exercise preventive medicine by following a series of regular checkups, tests, and inoculations. They eat well, maybe not us. They take vacations and provide for periods of exercise. In all these matters, men and women exercise the most commendable common sense. But they will not prepare to meet God in this, the day of grace. There are two ways to die, according to the Bible. You may die in the Lord. Revelations 14, 13 says, Blessed are they who die in the Lord from now on. Or you may die in your sins. To die in sin means to die with the burdens of one's sins still upon yourself. And as a result, to be forced to bear the penalty of sin, which is spiritual death. God says the wages of sin is death. Now, physical death is a separation of the soul and spirit from the body. But spiritual death is a separation of the soul and spirit from God. To die in sin is to die separated from God and to remain in that state throughout eternity. So what happens to your soul when you die? The answer is, if you follow Christ, your soul will immediately be transformed into the spiritual realm, in the words of Hebrews 12:22, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. 
as he has said to the thief being crucified right next to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And paradise is one of the biblical names for heaven. There will be no delay. In fact, your transition into the unseen realm may be so smooth, so seamless, and so natural, it may take you a while to realize that you've died. Now, if you happen to turn and see your body mangled in a car but don't see your head, you can take that as evidence of your passing. You'll have entered what is called the intermediate state, which is a state of your disembodiment, disembodiment, but before you possess your glorified resurrected body. In this state, you'll be, as one commentator put it, in direct and glorious communion with Christ and an immediate apprehension of God's presence, far more so than anything else enjoyed in this life. Thus the Apostle Paul encourages us in 2 Corinthians 5, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. As we finish up this morning, I don't know about you, but I often groan in this tent that my spirit inhabits with all the aches, pains, colds, flus, fevers, cancers, and a host of other ills. We long that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. Recognizing this, Paul says, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the, away from the body and at home with the Lord. As with the thief on the cross, when a believer dies, they will be immediately with Jesus in paradise. But it is our choice. And the choice simply is, what do we do with Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross? See, on every page of the Bible, he is saying, either crown me or kill me. He is trying to get us off the fence over and over and over again. I know there are plenty of people who do everything they can to ride that fence. But you cannot honestly be indifferent to Jesus Christ. He did not leave you that option. Thus, you must either follow him as your God and Lord, or you must seek to eradicate his presence from your life, as religious leaders did in his day. So I'll leave us with that question, which will it be? Lord, you have done everything for us. And as I think about that hill called Calvary, you had two men on each side of you, each equally guilty, each without no hope for salvation. And the one that just said very simply, Lord, just remember me. And that's all it took. And today there's some grinning ex-con walking the quarters of heaven that knows more than a thousand theologians. So I pray, Father, everyone within the sound of my voice and whoever watched this in the future, that you would open all of our eyes, starting with mine, as to where we are truly at in our relationship with you. We ask in Christ's name, amen.